welcome to the Archimedes section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where we talk about the clinical questions that you have raised and answered, or at least attempted to answer, using the best available evidence to guide the care of your patients. Every single month, well, nearly every single month, we have a couple of questions that people have generated. They're things that have arisen in their practice and have made them go away and look at the literature. They have a PICO clinical question, which is the patient, the intervention, the comparator, and the outcome for therapeutic studies, variations on that theme for the diagnostic and prognostic ones. And then they go away and they search the literature. They do it in a fairly systematic way and they bring back all of the evidence that is the most likely to give the most accurate answer to the question that they're asking. Then they summarize it and put it into a clinical context and come out with some clinical bottom lines. Now, when you're reading these things, obviously you can appraise them as well to see how well the search has been done, what the sort of risk of bias is in the studies that have been included, and how closely you think you will be able to follow those clinical bottom lines as well. Now, one of the most interesting parts of every single month is coming up with a new thing to think about critical appraisal. And this month, the critical appraisal note is all about prognostication. People of a certain age, and that's uh, very old, according to my children, will remember the usual way of getting association football scores on a Saturday afternoon, where you would watch the telly and the sports section would be on the screen and there'd be one of three channels showing. That's three, just three, yep. Uh, and what would happen is the, 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 the scores would come up for the people who are, are waiting for match of the day or some other program like that later on the the announcer would say look away now if you don't want to know the results and then there'd be silence they would go on the screen everyone would take them in that was looking and then they'd say you can look back now or something like that well I was never a great footy fan and I always wanted to know stuff because I've been naturally inquisitive or, or annoying depending on who you are uh, and so I rarely did look away I'd sometimes then have to spend an hour or so not mentioning things to my uncles or cousins and people like that. The truth would come out in the end, and it would come out to all of us. Now, did me, knowing the score of the Rochdale versus Port Vale match a couple of hours before my family, have any impact upon me? Did it alter the inevitable disappointment of my relatives, as they would feel when, yet again, the lads had failed to come up trumps? Did me knowing earlier have any benefit beyond a slight sense of unease and the inevitable? Well, when we go looking things, we might just find them medically. And the things we find might be immutable and disturbing and unhelpful to know. When we run scans and do tests and probe things and biopsy stuff, do we do those things to change our actions in some way that's helpful? It's a question that's stereotypically asked by radiologists, but should be held onto by all of us in paediatrics. How will this test or scan or x-ray change your management? Think carefully when you ask your clinical questions and seek evidence to inform the questions that will answer in a way that will let you change, alter, and improve what you can do for patients. Now, the first of our clinical questions is about the 
Pulsatility Index, adding value to the newborn pulse oximetry screening program for congenital heart disease. This is particularly topical at the moment because the National Screening Committee in the UK has come up with an initial decision against advising pulse oximetry screening for all newborns. This paper comes from Jonathan Searle, Devangi Thacker and Jayanta Banerjee, who are neonatologists at the Imperial College Healthcare Trust, uh, ICH, in London. The setting comes in a, a term neonate that collapsed on day five of life following a normal pregnancy and a normal delivery. On admission at day five, he was poorly perfused, mottled, impalpable femoral pulses and severe acidosis with echocardiography demonstrating a closed ductus arteriosus and, as you'd expect from that story, a severe coarctation of the aorta. His routine newborn screening and his normal pulse oximetry had been normal. Could additional screening get hinted at that diagnosis earlier with a different way of doing the screening using pulsatility index in addition to the normal pulse ox screening? The authors went away and did a systematic search on PubMed using things like cardiac and heart against newborns or neonets and then using the phrases perfusion index and pulsatility index they had 320 articles, screened them and came down to four relevant papers and then going through the citations and the uh, reference lists of those came up with one further article. Now that is a fair bit of work to get down to something as detailed as this. Now the numbers in these studies are nothing like you'll have seen in most paediatric studies. The smallest was just over a thousand and the largest 42,000 neonates screened across different areas using the addition of this, this pulse oximetry, uh, pulsatility index. In all of these things, what was found that there was minimal additional benefit from using this extra way of thinking about pulse oximetry with your pulsatility index. Only one in the 42,000 study was found to, to be detected using PI in addition to the normal pulse oximetry. That is quite some feat. When you're looking at really small things that change, you need enormous numbers. But to pull that all together, what the conclusion of the authors is quite reasonably is that it does not add anything much over and above the normal pulse oximetry. Now, I'm no expert on this field at all, doing very little in neonates with my oncological hat in and certainly nothing to do with cardiac stuff. But there is an editorial on this that I would urge you to go and read because it puts it in the context of all of this to do with the, uh, the screening debate uh, around neonatal critical congenital malformations. <laughs> The last of our clinical questions again relates to babies and this one comes from Abdul Razak from the Department of Paediatrics at the Princess Noura Bint Abdul Rahman University in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia and also associated with the Department of Paediatrics at McMaster Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. The question is about at what weight should a preterm infant be transferred from the nice cool confines of the incubator where everything is like a fish tank without water, highly controlled, into an open cot, a basket in the sea of life ahead. The scenario is that a preterm infant who had been born at about 28 weeks, weighing 1.6 kilos, was nursed in an incubator. But as they're going round, the medical team instructs the nurse to transfer the cot to an infant to an open cot. 
Now you can tell this setting isn't in the NHS in the UK because any medical team that instructed a nurse on a neonatal unit would only survive a very short period of time. Anyway, within this setting, there's a question about what is the benefit of transferring and is it okay to do it when the baby's weight is only 1.6 kilos? It, for some reason, and, 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 and we will hopefully find out why, it tends to be that they've got to be over 1,700 grams, 1.7 kilos, before they move out. Now, the systematic search that went with this found 101 different articles in two different databases and then screened all of those to come down to 15 that were looked at in really great detail. 11 of them really thought that it would be includable in this and three of them were actually brought together in a quantitative meta-analysis where the information is added up together. This is really unusual for an Archimedes. It's not illegal by any stretch, but it is pretty unusual. We don't make everybody do a full-on meta-analysis before they put an Archimedes together. The studies that were assessed were a range of things, but one of them was a, a systematic review that drew together four randomised controlled trials, looking at the randomising babies between moving at different weights. And it found that if you can move babies that you think might be movable, because remember, this is an RCT, so part of the inclusion criteria would be if you thought that baby was not going to be well outside of the incubator, you wouldn't put them into the trial. So there is some generalizability sort of issue that goes around with this. That uh, uh, 1,600 grams was absolutely fine to transfer out, but the reason that you would transfer them out might be to generate an earlier discharge to make them sort of more normal in the world. But it doesn't really seem to change that. It doesn't seem to improve their discharge rate as you're putting them all together. As a bunch of studies that came up with roughly similar answers, the idea maybe is conflicting that within the incubator, it might be more temperature control, that you can use the energy not to generate weight, but to uh, uh, generate heat outside of it. But moving a baby outside normalizes the baby, allows that baby to be looked after by their usual caregivers and improve and maybe eat more because it's in a better environment for those things. Pulling all of this together, the bottom line is that actually around about 1.6 kilos is a perfectly reasonable temperature to transfer, a perfectly reasonable weight to transfer preterm babies who are medically stable and otherwise well out of their incubators into an open cot. But you will not see enormously great uh, benefits from doing it there in terms of speeding discharge or anything like that. If you're looking for an increased weight gain though, it's actually better to transfer them about 1.6 kilos compared to 1.8 kilos if you have to wait until they get to 1.8 kilos before they come out. Um, and so to normalize the child, to have better interaction with the caregivers and to reduce the amount of resource intensive nursing that incubator care um, requires, around about 1.6 kilos is a perfectly reasonable size to transfer babies out into open cots. So, a lot about babies in this month's Archimedes. We don't always accept babies. Anything to do with not babies is okay. Even teenagers can come into Archimedes if you've got a relevant clinical question. What you need to do is crack on and ask those things that you've been wondering about as you've wandered around the ward round. Why is it we do this this way and they do it differently in a different hospital? 
What about the outcome of that slightly unusual situation? Is there a better diagnostic test than the one we use? Does diagnosing condition X really make a difference to anybody's life, apart from giving me something extra to write down on the discharge summary sheet? These are the sorts of questions that can generate a desire for evidence to answer them, and Archimedes is the place to submit them in the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. We look forward to speaking to you next month, and maybe it won't even be about neonates. Hey.